right, welcome everyone. Um, okay, so to start, um, Dina Sofsky is going to say a few words and welcome us on Zoom. Thank you very much. Um, I uh, want to give a big welcome to all of the attendees today, virtual and in person, um, to our Northwestern community members and guests. Um, I really wish I could be there with you in person today, but I'm very grateful to be able to participate through this hybrid format. Um, I really want to just start by welcoming our panelists and thanking them for their important scholarship and for being here in Chicago today. Um, and most importantly, their important advocacy work to advance greater justice. Um, so I want to acknowledge Kempis Ghani Songster and Professor Rachel Lopez, and also importantly acknowledge that one important person is missing today. Um, that uh, Cheryl Carter, who is a co-author on Redeeming Justice, is currently incarcerated on life without parole um, sentence, and his absence is um, deeply felt today. Um, Please join me in also thanking the Northwestern Law Review, Sarah Wolf Knight and Summer Zapraya for coordinating the logistics of today's events and making our guests feel welcome here at Northwestern, as well as to the many members of the Law Review who worked on this article and also um, worked on this event. Um, we're also grateful to Marianne Wu for supporting those logistics and coordinating with other Northwestern teams. Um, and a big thank you to um, our IT team for setting up the technology that's allowing me to be here with you today, um, and so many others of us to participate remotely, um, as well as the Northwestern Compass workers who are providing the food and refreshments that those are, who are in person will enjoy. Um, this article, Redeeming Justice, brings the lived experience of the co-authors into its legal analysis in making its case for the importance of the law recognizing the capacity for redemption. Um, and in so doing, I think it really highlights the importance of expanding the way we think about legal scholarship um, to include personal experience as meaningful evidence. Um, it also really elevates the voices of those who are most affected by the criminal um, justice system. And it highlights the critical work that clinics, with, with gratitude, of course, to our Blue Legal Clinic, play um, in law schools and in the kind of partnering work needed to advance justice. Um, so with that, I don't want to take any time away from our panelists, and so I will turn it back um, to, um, uh, to, to Sarah for an introduction of the panel. Okay. Thank you, Dina Sofsky. Um, so, my name is Sarah Wolfney, and I am the Volume 117 Senior Symposium Editor for the Northwestern University Law Review. Um, the Northwestern University Law Review would like to extend a strong welcome to our attendees, our guest authors, and our moderator. Um, so, Professor Shoba Mahadev is a clinical professor of law at, in the Children and Family Justice Center in the Bloom Legal Clinic. Um, Shoba represents adolescents as well as adults facing trial or convicted for offenses that occurred in their youth on appeal and in post-conviction and clemency proceedings, and supervises students working on those cases. Shoba also serves as the project director for the Illinois Coalition of the Fair Sentencing of Children, overseeing policy and litigation strategy with respect to advocating for fair sentencing laws for youth and young adults convicted of serious crimes. The coalition's work and Shoba's expertise have contributed to significant reforms of Illinois sentencing laws and sentencing laws across the country. 
Terrell Carter, who cannot be here with us today, is currently on his 29th year of a death by incarceration prison sentence. He is the author of three published novels and a graduate of Villanova University. While there is still much work to be done in his case, a recent Pennsylvania Board of Pardons decision has granted Mr. Carter a public hearing, giving some hope that he may be released. His presence is sorely missed, but we are grateful for the power of his voice in this article. Rachel Lopez is an associate professor of law at the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Drexel University and the director of the Andean Gwen Stearns Community Lawyering Clinic. She is also a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. In 2016, Professor Lopez researched transitional justice in Guatemala and Spain as a Fulbright scholar. From 2015 to 2019, she served as a commissioner on the Pennsylvania Sentencing Commission as an appointee of Governor Tom Wolfe. Kempis Scani Songster served 30 years in prison before being resentenced and finally released pursuant to the Supreme Court's decision in Miller v. Alabama, which held that mandatory life sentences for juveniles violate the Eighth Amendment. He now lives in Philadelphia with his wife and son and is the director of the Healing Futures Restorative Justice Diversion Program, a partnership between the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project and the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. The Northwestern University Law Review believes in the value of uplifting underrepresented voices in our pages. We understand that the voices and perspectives that have been historically underrepresented in legal academia are essential to realizing excellence in legal scholarship. Mr. Carter, Mr. Songster, and Professor Lopez's article, Redeeming Justice, epitomizes this idea by giving us the opportunity to hear from those most impacted by life without parole sentences. We are better able to understand and appreciate how these sentences condemn people to death by incarceration and therefore better able to advocate for a transformation of the criminal legal system that recognizes a human right to redemption. With that, I will turn it over to Professor Mahadev to begin our conversation. Welcome everyone on this hybrid format. I haven't taken my mask off and sometimes it feels kind of good to talk to you all. Um, some people are like, I've never actually seen her face before. <laughs> um, welcome, I'm so grateful to the Law Review. I expressed this when there was a live stream when this article first came out, um, that as one of my questions will go to, I mean, this is not the kind of scholarship we get to see every day and yet it is so critical. Um, it is the kind of scholarship that actually has the power to move. Um, uh, mountains, as it were. And I'm grateful for our panelists and authors for doing that, um, and grateful to the Law Review for elevating this type of scholarship. I also want to recognize, as has been done um, by our dean and by everyone, uh, uh, the co-author of this article, Rel, who is affectionately known as Rel, um, who is currently incarcerated, and so many of my clients and the clients of our clinic and all of the people who are incarcerated currently, many of whom have done this hard work that the article speaks of, of redemption, uh, the personal journey that that requires, and the great sacrifice it requires on their part, personally, in order to achieve that. And I want to recognize Rel um, and all of the folks who are incarcerated and, um, you know, and making that journey, along with people who have been harmed in, you know, violence and the other issues that have in, been inflicted upon our communities uh, over time and who are also having to struggle with the injustices of our system. And so I'm grateful to have this panel to talk about that journey in particular. Um, and uh, I want to start by hope, well, I'm going to hope that I don't, you don't have to hear too much from me 
<laughs> Let's start there. I would like to turn it over to our authors to first maybe tell us a little bit about just the article itself. Um, and if you could, in doing that, just uh, highlight some of the things you think are most important for people to maybe take away from the article, just as an introductory sort of place for us to start. Would that be okay? I think the story really starts in SCI data first, and then you should start there. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, thank you, everybody, for, for having us here. Um, my name is Kempis Sangstagani, and I, do, I just want to preface my response to that question by saying that me appreciating being here is not just being polite or having something nice to say. Um, being sentenced to life without parole um, means that I'm not supposed to be here by, by what that sentence means and also being on lifetime parole. I'm on parole for the rest of my life. Being said, at any given time, I could be, for any reason, I could be placed back um, and made to serve out the rest of that sentence, which as, as, as we'll learn means till you die. So again, when I say that I appreciate being here, that's coming from a very, very deep place. Um, right to redemption is probably the, um, the, the soil that the redeeming justice piece was 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 the seeds for that was planted in. I was in SCI Greater Ford at the time. SCI Greater Ford, by the way, was the largest um, state penitentiary in Pennsylvania at the time, and the sixth largest in the country. It was built in 1929 and finally closed in 2018, but not before I was released. I was released after serving 30 plus years in prison. On December 28, 2017, I walked out at SCI Greater Ford. Um, I spent the last 13 years of my, my 30 years there. I was transferred there on uh, May 4, 2024, and placed on uh, B Block, Cell Block B, and that's the block that Terrell was on, and that's where we met each other. Terrell is Terrell Carter, the other author in this piece. Terrell Carter, uh, you know, we, we, we hit it off after a couple of weeks of me being there. I think what, what attracted us to each other was how we stayed to ourselves, worked out, and always would be seen with a book, right? And so we, we kind of like connected with our interest in reading and, and education. At the time, Real was in Villanova too. Uh, Villanova had, was, uh, they, it was the only university at the time that was doing a bachelor's program. Uh, this was at SCI Grade 4. Uh, years later, you know, Terrell and I, together with a group of other brilliant minds, formed a group called Right to Redemption. This was called together by the then Vice President of Lifers Inc., which was a prison organization at the time that was um, founded to advocate for parole eligibility for lifers. And um, while we were in that space, you know, huddled up together, we were thinking about ways to give life back to what pretty much was a dead movement to end life without parole in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, we wanted to approach the campaign to end life without parole from a different kind of like perspective this time because we didn't want to do the same thing that had not been working all those years. We wanted to get down to the morality of the issue, um, the politics of the issue, and what really is central to the sense of life without parole, which was condemnation, this belief that somehow human beings that have done wrong, especially 
human beings that committed the ultimate trespass, such as taking a human life, somehow those human beings had no redemptive qualities or no rehabilitative qualities. We wanted to challenge that. And so that kind of like encouraged us to plunge a little deeper into an understanding of the human capacity for redemption. Right, and we started studying what redemption was all around the world because what we had come to learn was the nice moral definition or moral concept of, of, of redemption that we had grew up with, with in our households, our Christian households, our Islamic households, or whatever the case may be, was not what the legal definition of redemption was. Not in Black's Law Dictionary or Barron's Law Dictionary. Redemption actually is on probably somewhere down the other end of the spectrum. Was a, a financial transaction. It was about selling, buying back property that you sold. You know what I mean? And so, especially as a slave buying back their freedom. So, as a group of you know predominantly African American men, we were kind of like thinking about: Do we want to identify with something that was, excuse me, that was about buying back your freedom from slavery and so on and so forth? But we didn't just want to give up on what we had come to know redemption to mean. So that's what encouraged us to study redemption as it was defined in other parts of the world, which is something about the distinct human capacity to take ownership of the wrongs that you commit, to be accountable for your wrongs, right? And to really want to be responsible in righting those wrongs and making things right and helping the healing process, not just in the families that you've, you've wronged, but in the communities that you've come from that you might have played a part and destabilizing through your acts and so on and so forth. And so Right to Redemption was about um, being more than our darkest moment. It was about really lifting up that we had the capacity to be more responsible and be better, and no one had the right to tell us that we could not be that. Um, we met with Rachel Lopez at the time because she came in um, with a group from Drexel University. And Drexel University was one of the many universities that was allowed access to Greater Ford. Greater Ford was placed in a position that gave it access to several universities. And so, which is why this prison, as opposed to other prisons that might have been placed in areas that were less accessible to the community, there was a, a higher rate of volunteer. I mean, people were coming into that prison, lawyers, doctors, religious leaders, community leaders, professors, you know, everybody. And, and Rachel was one of the people that came in with a group of other lawyers to sit, sit with us to talk about community-based education, right? Um, and so that was our connection with her. Now, after I came home, December 28, 2017, later, a few months later, I would meet up with Rachel, and um, we would just start talking about the guys on the inside that I had left behind and this idea of redemption how we can really advocate that, especially in the current climate in Pennsylvania, which was a climate of kind of like a renewed thrust to end life without parole. You know what I mean? Not just for children like myself who was incarcerated at the age of 15, but for everyone. Um, and we just took a deep dive on, 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 in thinking about how, what can we do? What can we contribute to the world to deepen public understanding about um, people who were serving that sentence and about a sentence that basically condemned them to die and, and, and um, by saying that they couldn't become better. And um, Rachel, you could chime in here. Sounds great. I think that part of the story, we were reflecting on it, we were talking with a group of students before this, and I think you can't understand the article without understanding 
the story behind it. So when uh, this training that uh, Ghani is talking about happened in 2014, so why did it take till 2021 for this article to be published? Well, the ideas and sort of our thinking about it mutually started way back when. And I think there's something really unique about this moment of crisis convergence that really gave birth and allowed the space for something uh, that in many ways is antithetical to how we usually conceptualize legal scholarship. So just to kind of give you a little bit of background, like as a legal scholar, there is a premium on being neutral. There's a premium on um, sort of divorcing yourself, removing your emotions, as we talked about earlier, from our scholarship. And so you'll look at my scholarship before this article and see a much different tone and voice projected in it. And I'm not to say I'm not proud of this, this, this scholarship that I wrote before by any means, but this piece is really, it's, you know, in, 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 in comparison to the scholarship I wrote before, it's, it's transformative. And the reason why is, we were talking about this earlier, is there was a space that was created in this moment of crisis convergence. We were working together prior to the pandemic in the context of my clinic discussing under the theme and the rubric of right to redemption, what that meant and how to really bring that uh, to the fore in our advocacy and litigation strategy. Come March 2020, we were completely cut off from our comrades um, behind bars. And it essentially, part of this created um, a vacuum in terms of advocacy in which we tried to feel, fill out, like how do we actually still bring meaning to this understanding of the right to redemption um, and that sort of also converging with the crisis of George, George Floyd's murder and understanding that, that there was a space for reimagining what legal scholarship could look like, of really amplifying this work beyond our advocacy and litigation work is what gave birth to redeeming justice. Um, and there's a sense, right, that um, I think even so did, I think it's fair to say some people would read this piece and say this isn't really legal scholarship, but but Quite candidly, the, the arguments we are making here would not be arguments that we'd be making in an advocacy piece, right? This is intellectual analysis, as you're hearing from Ghani, that needed to be elevated um, at, at the level of legal scholarship in the sense of like we are we we are theorizing here about another way to understand the purpose of our criminal legal system, of creating systems of accountability at the core that look very different from the ones that, that we see, in, and I'm sure in your classes and also in your clinics operate within. And so there's, I think, a piece of this that cannot be forgotten in the sense of like, why does our scholarship look the way that it does, right? And, and the, the Northwestern, to Northwestern Law Review's credit, like lifting up this piece was not evident. We were talking about before, we didn't know if it was gonna be placed anywhere when we first wrote this. We were sort of wondering, like, is there gonna be any, any appetite for this sort of analysis? But I think that we are part of kind of an emerging group of legal scholars that really are looking to legal scholarship to create new meanings and understandings of the law in concert with activists and movement lawyers. And that this isn't space that should only occur, you know, the, the space for this is not only in the streets, but on the pages of law reviews, because what's needed here is not sort of a replication or reproduction of the harm that we've seen in the past, but sort of a, a conversation and dialogue that re-examines our legal constructs and how they need to be redefined. Can I, yeah, go ahead. I just want to add to that, just, just that piece because um, we wrestled, I think, 
the same way you had that 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 motivation to um, Rachel, where you wanted to break free from the kind the confines of that kind of like disconnected and mechanical um, kind of scholarship, and you wanted to you know ex you know allow your humanity to pour more into the work. You know, we on the inside, especially in the wake of Miller versus Alabama, we felt the effects of um, when Miller came down, right? Prior to Miller and leading up to Miller, the conversation was about the differences between a child and an adult, right? After Miller, with the creation of this of this contrived question of retroactivity and how states were ruling this way and that way on retroactivity, it seemed like for the next five years or until Montgomery, or next four years until Montgomery came down, the conversation had been arrested and hijacked and placed in this legalese bubble <laughs> that was soundproof to our families and the regular people on the outside. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because no more it was about the differences between a child and an adult. Now it was about retroactivity, substantive and procedural, Teague versus Lane, and all of these terms. So now when we get on the phone and we call our family members, you know, or people on the outside, they're bombarding us with that with, with the same question week after week over the next four years. When are you coming home? When are you coming home? I thought the US Supreme Court ruled. <laughs> And then so we have to explain, well, listen, it doesn't exactly work like that. And the minute we get into talking about retroactivity and substantive and procedural, it's, we could have been talking Chinese to our families. They most, they psychologically check out, you know, and, and, and it almost seemed as if it was by design. You know what I mean? <laughs> but a consequence of it was um, our, our movement lost a lot of confidence, didn't really know what to do in this moment because we were telling them, look, it's a, we, we have to wait until this, this thing fleshes out. And people we, people, we were talking about the issue no more in a human way until Montgomery versus Louisiana came down and it seems like if, okay, now we're talking about children again. You know, and I think when talking about redeeming this piece, redeeming justice, you know, we saw it as a critical space uh, a critical space and a free space that allowed us to use the kind of human language that we wanted to use to stretch the boundaries of the legal codifications of condemnation. You know what I mean? Um, to have a conversation about law, but in a way that still holds our humanity, still holds our dignity, and still holds what it means to be human. You know what I mean? And, and, and still holds the promise of, you know, the evolving standards of... Uh, of decency that marks the progress of a maturing society and so on and so forth. And so the language, the legalese language, we felt as though didn't give us space to, to write like that. And so we, we took some risks. We didn't know how you would receive it. We didn't know how the world would receive it. Um, it might have been a situation like we joked about upstairs where we'd like, look, you know, we tried. Maybe we can just cut the piece up and write it into different articles and op-eds or something. But... But it's, it's really heartening to see that we're actually in front of you now having a conversation about this piece. And I should note, this is the first time we presented the piece in person. Too. Oh, that's wonderful. We're so <laughs> glad to have you here doing that. And I wanted to touch on one thing that may have escaped folks' notice that I think is so critical to highlight that you mentioned, Ghani, which is this uh, the technicality in the law, right? Like, 
few people have had to walk down this rabbit hole of retroactivity, <laughs> walk away from it feeling as if we are talking about human beings. Um, you go down this uh, ridiculous technical wormhole. Um, and I, so when you said that, that really spoke to me as an attorney and someone who's represented folks inside that in some ways the Montgomery versus Louisiana was the most technical of cases. It made it very difficult to even figure out how to advocate around that case. Um, I was moved by the end of that decision where they talk about him, you know, a life outside of prison walls, how that decision closes, which meant, you know, that we were finally seeing the humanity. And what, retro what does retroactivity mean? And by the way, it's a fight we're having in Illinois, too. Retroactivity means human beings. It means people who are currently incarcerated. And I think sometimes a lot tends to lose that humanness in these technical arguments that we have, right? And, um, and that leads me sort of to two questions. And I think one is this article, as we've said, is much different than maybe, you know, I don't know, your grandmother's law review article. Um, hopefully we're on a different trajectory. Um, but uh, one, there's a couple ways in which it's different. And I, I want, I'm hoping you can both speak to two of them. One is the elevation of the voices of people who are currently informally incarcerated. Uh, and second is the framing of it, which is an intentionally chose, chosen, I, I think, human rights framework. And I was wondering if you could speak to both of those aspects of this article that make it so different than maybe what most people have read. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's something, you know, we talk about this as like, this is elevating the lived experience as evidence, and that definitely was our framing and thinking about this, but there's so much more, sometimes I feel like that doesn't fully capture the analytical work that went into this piece by the Right to Redemption Committee, because it's so much more than just you and Rel's lived experience, right? This was a, a conceptualization of your, your human circumstance that goes beyond just kind of reflecting on your individual lived experience. It was a collective endeavor of you working with uh, the other members of the Right to Redemption to really think of a way in which you can, it's a legal framework, right? It's not just about redemption, it's about the right to redemption. So they're putting it within a legal frame. And so there's something I think that, that is not fully captured in how we actually describe it in the article of amplifying the lived experience because it's more than that. It's sort of believing that there should be space for movements and those that are directly effective to analyze the law, to create legal meaning um, that actually informs how we understand the law. And we didn't get to the full sort of like legal analysis, but part of the work of redeeming justice is not just to elevate this idea of redeeming justice, but to tie it to how we understand the law. And this gets to the human rights framework, right? So. Um, Part of the story of this, right? I'm I'm a I'm uh, do a lot of work in the criminal legal system, but my expertise is actually in international human rights, and so I was doing some work with the Right to Redemption Committee about how do we um, build a legal argument around the Right to Redemption in a in litigation context. I think that the what sort of uh, I guess just to back up a little bit, I first heard of redeeming justice. I found the sheet because there was a Right to Redemption mission statement. That I I had and I still have to this day. It's the is it the one published and it's part of the article, yes, right? Yes, it is exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I still have this this uh, this sheet that I got in 2014. So, in line with sort of like, I guess we're building a narrative here in the chronology. But um, you know, why did it take so long for me to understand that redeeming justice was something that was important to the legal analysis of the Eighth Amendment? 
And the, the piece that I think, you know, when it sort of hit me, it was this crisis convergence I described, but it was also discovering in the human rights uh, sort of case law before the European Court of Human Rights that the exact framing that the Right to Redemption Committee was using was reflected in its understanding of uh, death by incarceration or life without parole by the European Court of Human Rights, which said that sentences do not, that do not allow for sort of reevaluation in light of changed circumstances, specifically changed circumstances meaning redemption and rehabilitation, sentences that do not account for that or allow for change in the sense are cruel and unusual punishment. And so a piece of this, and I hope we can get to this a bit more in a, in a minute, is what does that process look like as a legal matter? How do we create a legal structure that allows for reconsideration of what, especially in the United States and especially in Pennsylvania, is a mandatory sentence where there's no room for reconsideration? And that's really what this article is about. And in a human rights frame, maybe we could talk about this a bit more together because there's something about this moment where I see many advocates, I also represent a number of Black Lives Matter protesters who were very brutally attacked after, uh, during the protests of George Floyd's murder. And there is a yearning to use the human rights framework because the legal constructs that we've built our society and are inadequate to accommodate the demands that they feel in light of our current struggle um, to dismantle the criminal uh, human caging that we see as, as Donnie will discuss. But maybe you can sort of uh, talk a little bit about, I know for you, uh, human rights also has a very um, kind of special meaning and a centrality to your... Yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks for lifting all of that up, Rachel, and thanks for that question too, Shova. I mean, um, I don't think there has been any abolition movement or any phase of the abolition movement um, in this country, or any struggle, you know, um, with within oppressed or, or by oppressed communities that didn't seek to rely or you know or seek recourse through human rights law, international law, whether it was from the abolition movement back in the day, you know what I'm saying, or the fight to end Jim Crow, you know, you heard Malcolm X, he was a strong proponent of human rights law, and I think that um, inclination towards human rights law came from um, kind of like a distrust or even probably a resignation that there is no recourse or, you know, for, um, for, for, for people, especially people from marginalized communities through, you know, constitutional law or civil rights law, that we would have to seek assistance. You know, we would have to send an SOS out. We would have to call to the global community and try to leverage the weight of international law on these struggles over here. And it's no different with, um, with it was no different certainly with the juvenile life without parole issue. Let's not forget the role that the international community played in us ending this sentence. When Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International published that first piece back mm -hmm. in, two, in the beginning of 2005, yeah. the rest of their lives that's what that was. That was an international piece. And they were highlighting how the U.S. had 2,500 what they call juvenile life. I'm not a fan of the term juvenile or life because I'm just using it for lack of a more commonly used term. Again, that's one of those legalese technical terms that's devoid of humanity in my view. You know, just to throw out there, right? When we speak about juveniles, um, 
you know, that's it's it's a legal term, devoid of humanity. It's it's it's, it's, it's nothing positive about it. You know, even when a, your child or a young person or a little somebody in your house does something wrong, you don't get on the phone to your <laughs> sister or your family member and say, this damn juvenile is getting on my nerves. <laughs> even when they do wrong, you say, this child is getting on my last nerves. You never lose sight that you're talking about a child. It's only a juvenile when you're talking about other people's children. Juveniles is other people's kids. That's, that's, that's another way of other. Right, and um, and I'm also not a term of the fan of the term life, and we'll talk about that later on. So I prefer to use child lifers or condemned children, but we can use juvenile lifers for for um for lack of a more commonly uh, a lack of, lack of more accessible term. But um, yeah, so the term um in in the rest of their lives, juvenile we 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 we, we it was it lifted up that. The U.S. had 25 to 2,800 juvenile lifers, people serving life without parole or death by incarceration sentences for acts committed when they were kids or under the age of 18. And the rest of the world together had zero such people serving a sentence. So the word outlier, I think, we had to come up with a whole new word to define America's position in this. And it wasn't as if America wasn't a signatory on the Convention on the Rights of a Child. They were. Convention on the Rights of a Child specifically, I think it was... What was it, Shoba, you might remember? Was it Article 36B, I think it was, that said that it forbade, you know, on a global level, right? It, it, it's, it's the world's most universally ratified human rights treaty, how children are treated. But we have not ratified We have not ratified it. <laughs> right. I was just going to say. Yes, not ratified it and has been in opposition to the rest of the world on this for so long, for so long. But still... <laughs> But still, we, we, know, we, we, we beat the drum, we beat the drum, and, 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 and we wave the human rights flag, and we, res- and, and, and we believe that it had some type of effect. You know? I believe that I'm sitting here in front of you now because of human rights law. You know what I'm saying? And so um, I just think that human rights law, international law, especially in the wake of the Jones decision, and now the Felder decision, it kind of like vindicates the distrust you know what I'm saying, or the lack of hope, or lack of belief, or lack of faith that people from marginalized communities, especially those disproportionately impacted by the sense that we're talking about, has in in constitutional and and civil, you know, civil civil rights law that we we might have to reach out to the rest of the world to leverage international law to maybe help America see the light on some of these issues. Well, let's actually pivot to that, Danny. I mean, I I think that as much as you might say that international law or human rights law has some limitations or that courts don't look at it so favorably or all of the critiques that have maybe been levied against utilizing that framework. Um, it's clear that our current framework has some limitations. Um, <laughs> I think as, as is obvious from the United States Supreme Court's decision in Jones, folks not familiar, I would say that was kind of a hard backstop on this role that we thought was going with the Eighth Amendment and young people and sentencing. And now you had the court saying, mm, well, you know what we were, how we were talking about permanent incorrigibility and these tests that we were going to put forth about whether how to determine if somebody should be uh, incarcerated for the rest of their life if they have committed this offense as a child. Mm, we actually don't care so much about those terms. Um, incorrigibility isn't really a test. We're not have ensured that anybody needs to make any findings per se. They didn't overrule Miller, but it seemed to be a hard stop. So it's clear that even that approach had some limitations. And as 
as you've seen in Pennsylvania, you were pointing out the Felder decision, this is having a ripple effect, I think, you know, across the states. What do you think this takes us in terms of the fight around these kinds of long sentences, not just for young people, but for all, all folks who are incarcerated? Um, where do you think we go next in, in terms of the framework you're proposing? Yeah, uh, Rachel, I think, you know, you might want to kick this one off, you know, because, um, you know, we were just commiserating about this whole thing, you know, as we were walking over here to the school and as we were talking with um, some of y'all upstairs, you know, that um, it kind of like gets us to this point where we're like, you know what, maybe change is not, maybe change has to happen outside of the courts, you know what I'm saying, maybe change can't be confined to the courts, you know, that instead of trying to change the court opinion, we might have to try this in the court of public opinion, you know what I'm saying, that kind of thing. And so, Rachel, I'd like to hear how, how, you, how you frame it. Yeah, I want to go back to the Jones decision because there was sort of a serendipitous moment in the oral argument where Justice Alito basically asked the question that's at the heart of this article. So there's a moment in, which of course was was argued by one of your clinical law professors. So it's an exchange with David Shapiro, a clinical law professor here at Northwestern. And uh, Justice Alito turns to him and asks, do you believe that there are some people that are incapable of redemption? And this question sort of like, well, it gets somewhat erased, right, in the the ultimate decision of Jones. But I think that's where we need to focus our efforts, right, in terms of where the fight is. There was something nagging Justice Alito of this idea of incorrigibility, right? He didn't want to go there. I think that's part, you know, of course, there's many reasons why the decision came out as it did. But I think that there was something uncomfortable for him about this idea of declaring someone irredeemable, even though, to be very clear, as you'll read in our article, if you have a minute, the Supreme Court has again and again said that life without parole sentences are meant to call someone irredeemable. It's meant to tell, um, it's meant to convey basically that a person, no matter how they change, and this is from the Supreme Court itself, no matter the change they make to their sort of spirit and mind, they will always be condemned to this sentence. There's no room for rehabilitation and redemption. And so what does this tell us about where the fight is? And I think there's something really fundamental because what, and I'm going to go to the Jones decision, is there is a dodge here. So in the Jones decision, if you look at it carefully, they say that psychologists are unable to determine whether someone is irredeemable. And so the court, I think, here is uncomfortable to go there because they're like, if psychologists can't make this determination, how can courts make this determination? So instead, they do this dodge, right, that you see in Jones of saying, well, we really meant it as a mitigating factor, and we'll assume if there's discretion that that, that youth was considered, right? Um, But I think we need to go back to Alito's question here in the fight. What is, you know, do we as a society want to believe that people are incapable of redemption? Is that something that we, regardless of sort of like how you understand the law, but as a society, do we want to be a society that believes that there are some people that are throwaway, disposable human beings? I myself am not someone that wants to live in a society that believes that. And I think this brings us to where the fight is, which is we need to be challenging some of the narratives that undergird our legal system. And that may mean I have a very robust uh, theory of change. 
I think change is possible through the courts, though in this current moment, not so much. <laughs> um, but I think that we need to really think robustly about how do we construct narratives and how do those translate into a law. So it's interrogating those fundamental understandings that are often um, invisible in our legal decisions but are present there. We see it in Alito's question and how we asked of David Shapiro and Jones, what was going on behind the scenes? We see that very clearly in this question. So how do we push that issue forward? And I think there's a lot of ways that you can discuss sort of like, you know, plans for the future, but I think part of it is really challenging what are the concepts, what is our understanding of humanity, and how does that translate in a law? And a piece of this is the right to redemption. Another piece of this is how do we understand violence? Uh, which I'm gonna I'm gonna let go the answer for a bit. Hopefully we can get back to that in a moment. <laughs> about the violence piece, about the theory. Of yeah, I want to talk about that later. Maybe if we have a, a moment, unless you want to. But I think for you, the question right now, Ghani, is around this: where do you think the fight is next? And I'm going to ask you to maybe put in a little point here, which is that it sounds from what Professor Lopez says to me that we're talking about once again bringing it back to the voices of people who are currently formally incarcerated and whether they have a role in this fight. It's occurred to me many times in the times I've appeared before state legislatures, courtrooms, prosecutors, that some of this issue is that people don't know people who are incarcerated. They don't sit with them. They're not proximate, as Brian Stephen would say. And so I'm hoping you can maybe incorporate that into your uh, answer about what, where the fight is and where you think those folks belong. Can I give a little bit of context? Of course. Okay. So I think how we're talking about the issue of death by incarceration or life without parole on a whole, um, we, we have to center you know, um, the conversation about how that, that sentence is meted out to children in talking about that. Because that's, that's where the struggle against uh, life without parole has kind of like been most dramatic, you know what I mean, and out front over the past, mm -hmm. you know, maybe two decades mm -hmm. or so. Um, no other, no other issue or case of like dealing with life without parole or death by incarceration has made it to the U.S. Supreme Court other than as it relates to how that sentence is enacted on a child. That is a pressure point. And so we need, because it, and, and look how hard children are fought against. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that should give you an indication of what adults got coming. You know what I mean? And so anyway, um, but but let's 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 go back to to eighteen, say eighteen eighteen in the case of um, State versus Aaron. This is an eighteen oh eight case. Oh no, eighteen eighteen case. Um, you can look it up. Um, where an 11-year-old boy was, was executed, not by a lynch mob or anything, by the courts, because they said he had killed another child. In 1826, in State versus Gill, um, a 12-year-old boy was executed because they said that he had beat an old, older, older lady to, to death. He was executed by the courts, by hanging. Um, and I mean, like, try to imagine that, like a child, that way. Um, and then in 1828, Godfrey versus State, that was another case. Um, another 11-year-old boy 
was executed by the courts through hanging. Um, so this country has a has a has a history of meeting out very harsh treatment and sentences to young people. Flash forward to early 20th century with the case of um, George Stinney, the youngest person to be sentenced to death in this country. He was sentenced to death at the age of 14 in an electric chair for the death of, of two white girls at the time. 61 years later, evidence came out that he was not the actual uh, person that was responsible for the deaths, that the, that the person who murdered these two young um, girls made a deathbed confession. They were actually from a prominent white family at the time, right? And the family members were part of the coroner's in inquest jury, and they had, um, they had demanded that George Stinney be prosecuted. Anyway, 71 years later, he was, uh, I think he was granted a posthumous uh, exoneration, but not without resistance from the court. Alexander McClay Williams, the youngest person to be sentenced to death in Pennsylvania in 1931. And they, you go and look at his article, you see how his death certificate was doctored up by, I mean, like really um, some, some, some malicious means. Somebody turned the six into an eight and they could show you how the six was <laughs> turned into an eight. How you know it was it, it was just really 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 deep. Just just look up uh, any articles about Alexander McClay Williams. Flash forward to two thousand five, right? The U.S. Supreme Court finally decides that children should not be. It's unconstitutional to sentence children to death. Now two thousand five is a long time ago, especially for people for young people. <laughs> but we remember that like yesterday. Just like yesterday. You know what I'm saying? We remember that like yesterday. It's just two thousand five. This country still had children on death row, right? Flash forward to now 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court makes a ruling in Graham versus Florida that said that it's unconstitutional to sentence children to life without parole who didn't kill anybody. So they had children in this country serving death by incarceration sentences who, for robberies and burglaries and things like that. Then two years later, finally, um, Miller versus Alabama rules it's unconstitutional to sentence children to mandatory life without parole. Nothing moved, right? As again, that whole ruling was obstructed by this contrived question of retroactivity and all the stuff that we talked about. And it took another four years for it to go back to the court in the case of Montgomery versus Louisiana, and then they ruled. And then it took another year, at least in Pennsylvania, for um, people to actually start being resentenced and released because the debate was now okay, what was the right sentencing scheme, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, while you've had resentences in Pennsylvania and people coming home, in other states, there hasn't, in, like for instance, in South Carolina, I don't think they've released one person. In, in Mississippi, you have judges out there that have a 100% rate of resentencing children to life without parole. You know what I'm saying? So the battle for children serving this sentence, the ship hasn't sailed on that battle, right? Mm -hmm. Then you had another case that went up, that was the Malvo case. Right. Um, fortunately, they granted him parole. And so that was pulled. And then now you had the Jones case back. So this issue of, you know, how children are treated. Right. And, and how the, you know, how justice is supposed to be meted out to children who commit the ultimate trespass or grave, grave wrong. It's why it seems like it's just so hard. It's taken forever for the courts to get it right. 
you know, because it's always going back up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And now we have with the Jones decision, the beginning of the rolling back of Miller in less than a decade. And now with the Felder decision in Pennsylvania, it's almost like almost a complete rolling back. You know what I'm saying? And so um, where are we in terms of this fight? It's almost like we where we, 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 where we started. You know what I'm saying? We're exactly where we started, where we have to resort to human rights law and international law, right? And we have to take to whatever means, not just the streets, but social media, you know, our classrooms, our family, kitchen tables, wherever, and engage in a conversation about what's right and what is wrong. You know what I mean? Um, because that is getting lost in all of these opinions. When you read the Felder opinion, you can hear the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. You can hear the, them saying, look, um, we're constrained to conclude. We're forced to conclude. That's the language that, we, that they use. When Miller versus Alabama came down, we used our constitutional powers, right? To, to do X, Y, and Z. On, too much on, justice. On too a presumption, justice. you know. Right. And it said we still had questions, but now that with the Jones decision, um, the scope has been narrowed, mm -hmm. you know. And now we, you know, basically their hands are tied. And you can see where they said at the end, at the very, at the very last footnote, the very, very end of the opinion, they said, but the upshot is, that's the word that they use, the upshot. <laughs> Because they, it's almost as if they recognize that this was like a really, really bummer, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, of a decision. But they said the upshot is the mass majority of children serving this sentence has been resentenced. Out of 521 in Pennsylvania, the most of any state, 474 has been resentenced, 271 has been re released. And so... They said, there, we don't see any change. There shouldn't be any change in their already finalized sentence. And the General Assembly can always reconvene and, and do something legislatively, you know, and we won't stop them, basically, what they're saying. That's what they're saying. But it lets us know that, okay, our fight is not going to be in these courts. You know, we have no win here. We've been fighting this issue since the 1800s. Since the 1800s, we've been fighting it since Blackstone wrote commentaries where he talked about <laughs> so where he talked about a 10 year old girl was burned because she said she was burned alive because legally because she set fire to a barn where an eight year old boy was hung. And you know what I mean? We were fighting it since then. And and and, and I would just end on this point: when you read Graham versus Florida, and you and you see, check out Clarence Justice Clarence Thomas's dissenting opinion in that decision. Even though it was a dissenting opinion, it, it was very concerning for us in Right to Redemption, right? We read that opinion and where in, in part he said that the, um, the penal statute, right? He talked about the penal statute on, about disproportionality, right? Um, demonstrates that, you know, on sentencing demonstrates that proportionality, proportionality in sentencing is not something that... Um, should necessarily be considered. He said because, you know, punishments for range from running away with goods or merchandise at the value of $50 to 
to murder on the high seas was punished the same way. You know, with, and, he, and he quoted it with fines, whippings, public shaming, and even death. The fact that Clarence Thomas put in the dissenting opinion, right, that even today, it would be all right for somebody to be to receive capital punishment or be sentenced to death for stealing the value of $50, right? But the fact that he would do that, I think it's very, very concerning because it said to us that, look, there are entrenched forces, not just existing in the system, but presiding over it, presiding in the highest court of the land, right? That kind of like indicates to us that if the fight for redemption amongst children or if the fight for justice for children is going to be an uphill fight or before on a hill, then the fight to end life without parole or death by incarceration for everybody, including the adults, is going to be fought on a precipice. It's going to be fought on the side of a cliff. You understand what I'm saying? And so we resigned ourselves to that from the door that we were going to have to do we're going to have to resort to international law. You can find it in our mission statement when we said we will appeal to the United Nations Council on Human Rights. Right. We said that. Right. And that we were going to advocate for legislative changes. We were going to organize with our families. We, we knew that this was going to be an organizing project out of this world. Right. That we were going to have to bring everything to bear in this fight. And it would not just be confined to the courtrooms. It's going to be in the streets. It's going to be in our households. It's going to be in our hearts and minds. It's going to be surrounding state capital, right? It's going to exhaust everything. It's going to our imagination, our creativity, our, our, our artistic prowess. We use artwork. We, we, we use social media. We use everything to, to kind of like bring the weight of everything that we have in us to bear in this fight to end death by incarceration or, or end the culture of condemnation in this country. Can you join me in wishing you a happy